it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Now. South on it in for the 142! Season's greetings, little boy. Season's greetings. Greetings of yeah. the season. Festivus. Festivus is upon us once again. It's That's rolled it, around yeah. another season. Um, you're listening I'm to the start evening with my listing of the gre- uh, listing of the grievances. And then uh, the tests <laughs> of strength. We can't forget those. <laughs> so here we are. You're joining us on the evening glass, uh, where Luke and I will be talking about some of our favourite Christmas movies, our alternative Christmas movies. Although these Christmas movies aren't so alternative that they're not in the alternative canon. But we're also um, focusing mainly on Trading Places because we weren't sure what to talk about this episode. And Luke said, let's do Trading Places, man. And I thought, yeah, because I bloody love Trading Places. Uh, I think it's, for me, it's, um, of all films, even more than Planes, Trains and Automobiles, it's the one that gets me in the season. It's something about the way that it moves from Thanksgiving to Christmas to New Year's. Uh, mm. The way that they dress, the environment, it's Philadelphia, it's snowy. Um, and it's subversive as well, which is also what you'll find out that what we like from a Christmas movie. Uh, so yeah, we'll be absolutely. talking about trading places a little bit later. But first, what do you, what do you watch at Christmas? What do you genuinely like to watch at Christmas? Which films do you get out from the old DVD carry case? What do you like to catch on the telly? What are your favourites mm. and what have been your favourites for the last 20 odd years? So there's two that I watch every year without fail, and that's um, Home Alone, which is a true Christmas film, of course. It, it, the whole point and purpose of uh, the plot and the themes, are uh, Christmas is integral to those. Um, you know, Kevin McAllister realises that he loves his family and that's all he really wants for Christmas. And he also helps out a neighbour at the end of the day as well, um, who, who's estranged from his son. Christmas is it's all about Christmas, and... Um, you know, there's even even some elements of consumerism in there as well. Um, but uh, the non-Christmas film I watch every year is Die Hard. I just whacked that out the other day. And um, every every single year without fail, I'll make sure that I watch Die Hard. Because um, I have a lot of nostalgia for that because I think it was on one year. And I know that if you go back through the feed, you'll go to last year's uh, episode that we did on uh, an 80s 90s tv christmas when premieres really mattered and uh, yeah. it was one of the only only moments you might have in the year to actually to see a film again because uh, you know maybe you didn't have the pocket money for vhs and films were more expensive back then anyway you didn't just go to uh, v and get something for three or four quid um and the used market was different things maintained their value mm. uh, things were just generally more expensive so therefore a, a big moment was of course just recording stuff off of the telly uh, every every year so i'd urge people to go back and um Listen to that. In the uh, marketing trade, we call that content evergreen because we, <laughs> we can just play that, play that any any time, uh, every Christmas, and it's there. Um, and yeah, it was really nostalgic. We even have um, some of the old stings, don't we, from uh, TV, um, yeah, like terrestrial TV the channels one. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, the Batman one's great. Um, so, but I remember on that note, I remember li- watching Die Hard one year. I-, I think it was a Christmas Eve. Um, basketball was definitely one year, and I think Die Hard was one year as well. And uh, I w- watched it late one night on my own. And uh, for that reason, as a kid, it's just always uh, left that lasting impression. But of course, it's not a Christmas film. It was not released at Christmas. Um, and uh, Trading Places, I'd say, is the same thing, uh, released in June, of all things. A bit like Gremlins as well. Is it the case that when Gremlins was released in the summer of 84, Trading Places in 83, and Die Hard in 88? 
Yep. Was it the case that only six months later they'd be available on tape, or were they also missing the Christmas rental market? Uh, I think they must have missed the rental market as well. Um, It's a rum old time to release films that are set at Christmas, even though we're obviously they're not necessarily typical Christmas films. Although they, as I say, they have become part of the canon, but. It is funny to put Gremlins out. I mean, it's such a Gremlins in particular is such a festive picture. The first half is because it starts. It's really odd. It starts with this pastiche of um, "It's a Wonderful Life," doesn't mm. it? But by the end, it has forgotten that. That is um, uh, when the mean old lady uh, is flung off of the uh, uh, the chair, the the, the, yeah. the stairlift. Mrs. Off, Deagle, off the yeah. Mrs. Deagle. Then that's um, it's kind of the. The the wonderful life sub subplot's kind of over after that, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yes, because she's standing for Potter, isn't she? Yeah. She is. Yeah. <laughs> the dog. <laughs> oh yeah, she's even like the Wicked Witch of the West from um, Wizard of Oz. Yeah, Gremlins yeah. is it holds a, a special place in my heart, and I noticed that this year it's on on the twenty third on ITV ten forty five p.m. And I mm-hmm. know I, I took that down because that's the one that I was able to trace back to Boxing Day. 1991, me and my mum watched that on ITV, 10.20. Regardless of Gremlins being set at Christmas, it's important to me as a Christmas film because I have a Christmas memory. Mm. And I was, how old was I then? Seven or eight years old. So staying up till 10.20 was hugely late anyway. And we watched it to the end. So that would have been well after midnight. And the way that when I... Watch out for the Gremlins, mate. Do not... (laughs) When we were kids... You know, even a 100-minute film felt like a long time. I remember the first time I watched yeah. Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe. And yeah. years later, I thought, that must be three hours. That must be like Lawrence of Arabia or Ben-Hur. <laughs> and it's not. It's, it's that, just that, it had the adverts kind of, in. It has the adverts in. And that kind of film as well, I haven't. I mean, I haven't watched that since I was about nine. But I'm sure that, that was, that's got a pretty episodic kind of a plot as well. Mm. Any episodic films instantly feel very long. that don't have a kind of three-act structure as such there. Uh, often, you know, things that were adapted from novels, that sort of thing. Yeah, Driving Miss Daisy. I was going to say, one, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I was going to say Empire of the Sun, which I watch every Christmas when it's on. But I think that might be long anyway. To be fair, do you? You 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 watch Empire? Empire of the Sun. Yeah, I do. I don't know why. Again, I think I think that that was just on one Christmas in like ninety one, ninety two, or something. And yeah. um, now when it's on, I just I keep it on. Uh, much much to my wife's chagrin, Lex cannot stand coming in a picture halfway through. Um, she really doesn't like it, but I'm a big channel surfer, and I love yeah. just watching 20 minutes of something uh, and then moving on. Uh, the, 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 for, for me, that's that's part of the joy of um, of having a television in the, in the room. Yeah, <laughs> to be honest yeah. with you, <laughs> it doesn't bother me at all. I, I'm exactly like that. I would be like that with Empire of the Sun, wherein I the, I'd like to come in at the moment when he crests the hill on the stately home property and finds the Japanese encampment. Do you remember? Yes. The soldier's yes, just, just there. And then Leslie Phillips comes and takes him back to the house, I think it is. Cause they're I all in fancy like dress. That in films. Um, yeah. That's when I'd come in. But yeah, I definitely. There's, there's points that I could exit the film, but I couldn't exit before, for instance, Joe Pantoliano's introduction or when they find Malkovich and mm. he says. Chew every mouthful six times to get the benefit. Really? That whole segment is my favourite segment. Is the Malkovich stuff on the, in the camp? That, that yeah. whole element is my favourite. My favourite strand of the movie. I love. I love it. I, and I came to it fairly late as well. I watched it for the first time about twelve years ago, ten years ago, and it's only in the last three or four years that it's become a film that I quote often. Malkovich's uh, Basie is one of my 
is one of my character go-tos. I think mm. of him a lot and think how cool he is. Like um, when the the dudes that look like they're practicing their Shintoism in, in the in the white overalls, they're about to beat mm-hmm. the shit out of him and he takes his glasses off, gives them to Jim and says, when they're finished, I want those back. And then they beat him up. He's such a cool character because as well, because yeah, yeah. he's a... He's a scoundrel, you know. Uh, Jim doesn't see it, but obviously, basically, he's a piece of shit. And uh, he's a survivor, a little bit like Jim. He'll do anything. He'll do exactly what he needs to do to keep his head above water at the expense of everyone. That's one of the reasons why that feels so long, because even in that whole segment in the camp with Malkovich, um, there's power struggles and people, power shifts and people live and die on the, in that camp. Yeah. Um, so it's probably another reason why it literally the passage of time is so acute. You're so, so acutely aware of it, you know. But there's another um, sub, there's a sub sub genre of Christmas films that aren't Christmas films. And that's Shane Black Christmas uh, films yeah. that aren't Christmas <laughs> yeah. films, yeah. Uh, which you can include Lethal Weapon, <laughs> Iron Man 3 and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And are there any others would be my question. They're the three that spring to mind. Yeah. Long Kiss Goodnight. Uh, oh, because yeah. funnily enough, uh, as a Shane Black super fan, I wouldn't. That's the only one of his that I would uh, particularly associate with Christmas or think that I've got to watch this Christmas. Did we say Lethal Weapon? I mean, most of his films are set at Christmas. Yeah, I did say the original Lethal yeah, Weapon. Yeah. Um, but it's only Long Kiss Goodnight because I think that's the one that. Um, that's Shane Black at his most biting and most cynical, but there is. Uh, there's structure and emotion to his, his cynicism within it. Well, as I wrote about on the website, it's really telling that it was that was his last screenplay before he disappeared for the bulk of 20 years. And it's mm. really telling that it was the first time he set anything outside of California. This time it was in Pennsylvania, where he's from. And it, was, it felt like a, a much more personal treatise. Um, it's a wonderful film and I think a good one to watch at Christmas as well because it is about uh, a family broken apart and coming back together which is what Die Hard's about yeah. I'll, I'll give you my alternative Christmas movies these are the pictures I like to watch at Christmas and which I associate with Christmas uh, Last Crusade and I think because it's father-son stuff and it was uh, the indie pictures they're even on this Christmas they're always on every Christmas it feels like ITV will always have the rights to bond and BBC will forever have the Indiana Jones films. Oh, there's, there's comfort in that. It's a shame that they mm. cut them. But Last Crusade, Great Escape I really love, and that's another one that really does go on for two and a half hours, and if you add in the adverts, and of course it used to be the case that you get the news in the middle as well. <laughs> I've written a little bit about A Midnight Clear on the Instagram. It's a picture by Keith Gordon based on a novel by William Walton um, about a, a tiny detachment of soldiers in the Battle of the Bulge. Um... Brainy Soldiers, it's an unusual example of a film wherein uh, The Thing is like this as well, where there aren't any dum-dums. I mean, so many horror pictures and so many movies in general depend upon people making bad decisions. But A Midnight mm. Clear, which is uh, it's a lovely cast, um, actors at the beginning of their career in the early 90s, Peter Berg, Kevin Dillon, Ethan Hawke, they've been selected by their superiors to work together in intelligence specifically because they're they're smart most of their decisions while they're out in the field are very considered and calm um and a midnight clear it's it's chilling in a couple of ways it's chilling because it's set during the battle of the bulge and it's uh, demonstrably cold for them and snowbound but also it has an element of um of the uncanny it's not a ghost story but it kind of you get the same feeling where you you it's good to to wrap up and have have Coco on the go, 
and watch it mm. with someone you care about and just think about think about all the terrible things that you could be experiencing at Christmas and that people have over, over time and over the years. And uh, yeah, it's all steer and I, I really like it. And um, I don't know what platforms it's available on, but I hope that people might try and find that. It, it slows things down. And then yeah, the, the sure. next one's um, Die Hard, as you've said, in Gremlins, as you've said. Trading Places and we'll di- talk die about. Hard, die Hard 2, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. They, they kept with the Christmas theme for Die Hard 2. And that's serviceable. You know what? There's a, there's um, Christmas references in the third one as well. Hey, fellas. Mickey O'Brien, Aqueduct Security. Hey, listen, we had a report of a guy coming through here with uh, eight reindeer. Yeah, they said he was a jolly old fat guy with a snowy white beard. Cute little red and white suit. I'm surprised you didn't see him. I think in Die Hard... Theo whistles singing in the rain, which has its reprise in the third one. Uh, there's, oh. there's, there's a lot of callbacks and call forwards in that film trilogy, even though they're tiny ones. Um, so I'll be watching uh, Die Hard, definitely. And The Snowman. I, I love that. That's got the same feeling as A Midnight Clear. Not the, um, not the terrible Michael Fassbender picture that came out a year or two ago. Snowman's one of my faves. Um, and I've got it on DVD and I've got the uh, one with the Dave Bowie intro yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. And it's, um, it's the same feeling that you get from A Midnight Clear where there's, it becomes wistful. And I like that, what I like about The Snowman is that it's inordinately joyful but then it's uh, melancholy as hell. Yeah, yeah. It's ending. <laughs> what? Uh, it's a good thing it, to well, watch when you're six death. or seven or eight years old. Yeah, because its, it's ending it's, says there is adulthood to come. And, and I think yeah, and things everybody end. needs to know that. Yeah, and I'm yeah, I'm, I'm terrible die. with finality. I'm even your icy, icy friend. <laughs> yeah, everything, everything ends. So it's um, it's one of my favourites. I love the animation style as well, yeah. which will never date ever. Uh, you know, it's not like what, what you watch what El, what Hanna Barbera were doing in the seventies and eighties. You know, that stuff's dated Oof. to hell. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 you know, the Snowman will never date. This kind of hand drawn, literally like bringing the the pages of the children's book, the picture book, but, but to life. Yeah. You know, it, it, incredible. Um, that nice and, flight I, I, over the uh, over the whales and the party boat as well. The party boat's great, and yeah, I love any gag where someone sees something out of a window and can't believe it, and then double <laughs> yeah. checks uh, to make sure what they're drinking, you know, is yeah. <laughs> some kind of hallucinogenic. Um, I, it's a, a well-treaded trope, but I always enjoy that gag. Um, and um, one of my favourite movie details, which I wasn't aware of until the other day, I was reading a piece online. Um, there's actually a shot in that um, the fly flyover sequence where there's there's a helicopter silhouette on the ground just for a split moment to give the impression that they're being filmed from a helicopter that this is actually in camera wow which um which i think i I just that blew my mind and i think you know any any movie to be around for that long that i've been watching since i was probably four years old um to to then learn something new about that i I thought that was that really blew my mind i thought it was a great detail that's lovely wow no i didn't know about that it's a wonderful life of course i'm not so miserable that i don't utterly well up um oh gosh it's the you know it well don't you absolutely i i've been watching it to death every year for the past i don't know six or seven years maybe um so it was never one of the ones i watched as a kid Uh, i just never had access to it um but uh, i got it on dvd Maybe longer than that. Maybe eight years ago, eight nine years ago. Uh, I got the two disc version as well. Um, one's one's colorized and one's oh. black and white. 
Um, I've watched the colorized version once, and it it ain't worth it. It ain't worth <laughs> it. There's um because there's something with the black and white film as well. I I think there's something about it that's it's kind of made to be black and white to an extent. Just just the way it's shot and yeah. and, and yeah. Uh, I I I think it's made to live in that world to some extent. Um, and that's why it works really well. Um, and I almost, to a certain degree, because it it's even a period film in itself, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. So even, even when it, you know, it's an old film, um, and then it's already set, what, 30 years before that or something, maybe maybe earlier. It's already a period film itself. But I think there's something about the a black and white movie, and I know that um, this is a modern head on, on my shoulders, but it does feel like you're looking into the past and... There's a certain element I think that works quite well there, you know. Well, I think yeah, I think one of the reasons, one of the things that works about it is that um, it's reflecting on a particularly combustible period of American history because it's uh, it's it was Jimmy Stewart's first film since getting back from World War Two. He was a flyer, uh, unlike John Wayne and a number of others. He actually he served with great distinction, um, didn't speak about it, and wasn't too what he felt was patriotic was to serve, you know? Yeah, sure. But rather than use his celebrity to, um, for a number of other reasons. I mean, John Wayne just kept making pictures. Others at least went on war bond rallies and such, but Jimmy Stewart felt that the right thing to do was to serve like everybody else. I can't even remember if he had to sign up under a different name, although James Stewart is uh, such a moribund moniker anyway that he, um, I don't suppose that people would have really, it's not like he's called Rudolph Valentino, you know? Um, but yeah, it was his first picture uh, back from the war um, and Capra needed to convince him to it because, as I say, there's America had never faced such a challenge as the the remnants of the First World War followed by the Depression at the end of the 20s begin, uh, and a depression that was only broken by the greatest cataclysm the planet's ever known. Um, mm. And I think that you could say that It's a Wonderful Life is looking back over those preceding 25 years, 20 years, because, um, yeah, you're right, the early scenes... Sorry, early in the film, it has uh, flashbacks to his childhood, but then also his life as a teenager, which I suppose will have been in the late... In the in the 20s, I think. Yeah, something... Yeah, maybe, yeah, 1980. And it's funny because to, um, to us, it all just looks like the olden days, you know? It all looks like, yeah. well, that's about 100 years ago now, yeah. anyway... But um, I'm sure at the time, uh, you know, the, the distance was only between now and the 90s. So maybe I, but mm. I don't think that American culture or culture in general had that had the same levels of nostalgia and reflection that we do now. I don't think they will have had, um, uh, man, the things we were doing 20 years ago, the fashions we yeah, were wearing. You, you, know? <laughs> you, you just think so you just think it's more of a literal uh just a you know a function of the movie just to show look this is thirty years prior yeah so it's you know they were just matching the fashion stuff it wasn't there to harken back but this is what I mean like there I don't think there was necessarily any fondness for the good old days of the Dust Bowl and uh, you know mass unemployment in nineteen thirty two and nineteen thirty four it was a mad time yeah oh nineteen forty six December twentieth nineteen forty six so yeah. yeah it was it was after after World War two yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, it's one. It's one of my favourites for sure, and um, not not just for all the endlessly quotable stuff, but I do love how um, how serious it is. I love that it doesn't shirk away from the fact that the guy is going to take his life. 
Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that they're for that for that reason, the whole th- <laughs> the whole thing centered around it. And uh, I think for that reason, it's something that should still be played toward people now. You know, we're, we're so acutely aware now of uh, mental health issues and people talking about it. And um, I've got a couple of friends who are big campaigners uh, for it because uh, I think um, suicide's the biggest killer of men under 45 in the UK. And, um, you know, for, for that reason, it's the sort of thing that um, uh, I think we should all, it should probably be, you know, played in schools and stuff, you know. Yeah, I agree. It's a, yeah, it's a man at the end of his tether, and it's um, it's difficult day to day to remember that we do have positive influences over people because everybody does. We can't really constantly have pep rallies for one another, where mm. every couple of weeks you're saying, "Yeah, but you know, you did that thing for me three weeks ago," and uh, I, I do have a, a kind of you know a constant evaluation. <laughs> I, count, of, I count everything. Yeah, I you never know, forget. Um, <laughs> I did a lot for you recently. Yeah. Um, we can't really live like that, and it is, uh... yeah, yeah. It's um, it's one that I'll be watching. I'll try to get to the Regent Street Cinema for it. They're showing it twice on the twenty third and twice on the twenty fourth. Oh, that's uh, fantastic! The bit that gets oh me... to live in London again, yeah. <laughs> or, or you could just watch it on DVD. <laughs> but it is good to see it at the cinema. And the bit that gets me is um. Now listen to me. I, I beg of you not to do this thing. If Potter gets a hold of this building and alone, there'll never be another decent house built in this town. He's already got charge of the bank, he's got the bus line, he's got the department stores, and now he's after us. Why? Well, it's very simple, because we're cutting in on his business, that's why. And because he wants to keep you living in his slums and paying the kind of rent he decides. Joe, you had one of those Potter houses, didn't you? Well, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what he charged you for that broken-down shack? Here, Ed, you know, you remember last year when things weren't going so well and you couldn't make your payments? Well, you didn't lose your house, did you? You think Potter would have let you keep it? Can't you understand what's happening here? Potter isn't selling, Potter's buying. And why? Because we're panicky and he's not, that's why. We've got to stick together, though. We've got to have faith in each other. But my husband hasn't worked in over a year, and I need money. How am I going to live until the bank opens? I got Dr. Bills to pay. I need cash. I can't keep my kids on faith. I've got to have... How much do you need? Hey! I got $2,000. Here's $2,000. This will tide us over to the bank reopens. All right, Tom, how much do you need? $242. Oh, Tom, just enough to tide you over into the bank reopens. I'll take $242. That doesn't There you are. That'll close my account. Your account's still here. That's a loan. Okay. All right, Ed. Well, I got $300 here, George. All right, now, Ed, what will it take until the bank opens? What, what do you need? Well, I, I suppose... Twenty dollars. Twenty dollars. Now you're talking. Right. Thanks, Ed. That's fine. All right, now, Miss Thompson, how much do you want? But it's your own money, now, George. Don't mind about that. How much do you well, want? Now? I can get along with twenty, all right. Twenty dollars. Fine. And I'll sign there the paper. You don't have to sign anything. I know you. You pay when you can. That's okay. All right, Miss Davis. Well, could I have seventeen fifty? That's your heart. Of course you can have it. You got fifty cents. When his wife produces the holiday money. Oh yeah, my that's days! It. I just yeah. the. Astonishing act of self-sacrifice. Yeah. Because they're saving the town. And in that one moment where it impresses upon you that not only is he a good man, but he's found a good partner and they will be a good, strong partnership because mm. she understands what needs to be done. To, you know, to, it's something that we can think about going into this damned election, but to save us, to save us from the potters of this world, it does require good men to stand up. Uh, you're you're very optimistic that you'll have will have this ed, uh, episode edited and uh, online for my provincial friends, uh, Cinema City and Norwich. 
uh, is playing It's a Wonderful Life at 6pm on Friday the 13th of December. Oh, Again, good. I think I think this will have been and gone by the time... Uh, I think that's the night of my office Christmas party as well, so unfortunately, um, I think I... I think I know where I'd rather be, actually. I love my <laughs> colleagues very much, oh. but uh, <laughs> but my word, that would be good fun. Yeah. Uh, keeping on uh, the topic, I suppose, and may- maybe to finish up, I'm running out of kind of non-Christmas Christmas films, and It's a Wonderful Life, I'd say, is pretty firmly in the Christmas camp. But um, there's there's another sub-sub-genre beyond uh, the Shane Black ones, and uh, I would say that that's uh, Mr. Tim Burton himself. We've got Batman Returns, of course, um, and would we include Edward Scissorhands in that? Yeah, yeah, I suppose yeah. so. There's snow in it. Yeah. yeah. He makes the snow, doesn't he? Man, I haven't seen that in a long time. Yeah. And they decorate a Christmas tree and stuff. There's definitely Christmas stuff going on in, um, in it. Yeah. Hands. And it's got um, that same sort of... Um, uh, there's a warmth to it. The end. It ends in a very poignant note, isn't it? Whenever it snows, I know he's still around or whatever. And, yeah. Uh, it's because he's carving up the ice. Batman Returns is a good call as well. It, what I like about Batman Returns is that the first one was shot it was like the biggest set they'd done at pinewood exterior set ever wasn't it they yeah. built this whole city outside on basically the airfield and it's like the same place where they did um prometheus more recently and stuff you know so yeah. this huge huge outdoor area and um batman returns in contrast to that is indoors it's it's blatantly in sound stages so yeah. there's that big opening number with the uh circus gang and they're fighting them at the christmas tree light switch on and stuff yeah and um it's so blatantly on a soundstage. And there's something that I find... As, ki- as a kid, it really turned me off because it felt like it was less authentic than the first movie. But as I've grown older, I've realised that it gives it this weird theatrical stage feel to it, which, of course, kind of chimes with the whole carnival, grotesque, um, freak show theme that's going on with the Penguin and the circus gang who yeah. are his henchmen. So uh, there's there's something about Batman Returns that that appeals very very much in that sense, uh, and I think part of the fact that it's on this soundstage blatantly is is a big element of that. Well, Kubrick did a lot of stuff on soundstages as well. I mean, it's all about how you it's all about how you dress it really. Well, they dress this one with a lot of Christmas lights, Fletch. Yeah. Loads. <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple more alternative Christmas pictures and ones that I do genuinely enjoy as well. Whit Stillman's Metropolitan. Uh, it's span is the entire festive season because it's set around the debutante scene of uh late 70s new york Mm. um and all they do really is get ready to attend parties and have after parties that's what we see we see the main characters occasionally dressing up or picking up their tuxes or uh or their laundry and then we see them we never see the actual ball the deb ball but we then see them reclining in drawing rooms, playing cards and various parlour games and having um, wonderfully witty exchanges. Have you seen Metropolitan? No, I haven't, no. Oh, it's a lot of fun because it introduced Chris Eigerman, who is in the first three Whit Stillman pictures, um, and he's the kind of... Uh, he's the kind of sophisticated outsider agitator that I aspire to be. Mm. Um <laughs> He's uh, he's like deliberate, uh, deliberately truculent. I aspire truculent. to be an outsider <laughs> agitator. That's such a good line. Because he's he's part of their scene, but at the same time he detests it. Um, yeah. And in, and it's clear that he enjoys being the one that pisses all over it. Mm. Uh, even though he at the same time he he somewhat loves it. He has some uh, 
trying to think of some of his better lines now. But um, I, I wrote about it on the Instagram anyway, because it's one that I I always watch that around the time, because it's Christmas at its best, especially when you're a, a young adult, can mean mm. 10 or 12 days of almost constant parties. There'll, if there's a party, there'll be a party every day, and it's up to you whether you want to attend it or not. Especially when we were um, you know, coming back home from university, or even yeah, when we absolutely. were, say, 23, 24 years old. And from in that entire period, from... Like December fifteenth to January second or third, you can find people to stay up until one a.m. drinking heartily. Absolutely, yeah, and I, yeah. I like that. I, I, one of the things that's good about Christmas is that it's an opportunity and an excuse to stay up past your bedtime with people that you appreciate the company of. You're doing nothing in particular. And then my last alternative Christmas picture is one that's set at Christmas: Barry Levinson's Diner from 1982, a favourite oh, of my yeah. father's and I. Um, that's got a, a, a really strong early 80s cast. Steve Gutenberg, Daniel Stern, Mickey Rourke, Paul Reiser, Kevin Bacon. And who's the other one? Tim Daly. And right. I might still be forgetting somebody. And uh, it's a great hangout picture. It's about a set of fellas, late 50s, in Baltimore, uh, reuniting at Christmas. I, th- I mean, when I watched it as a kid, I thought they were 40. But clearly they were meant to be like 23 <laughs> or something. All I knew was that they were older than me. Um, I think they're in their mid-20s and yeah. uh, they, they, they go back to their hometown for Christmas and do nothing but it, it, I have uh, such great memories of it. They, they drink until four in the morning, mm. stagger home, wake up at 11 mm. uh, in their vest. Uh, there's a precise scene, I think, as well, where Steve Gutenberg wakes up in his vest, puts on a new shirt and goes out again for breakfast, which is by now lunch. They start drinking again. And it's just, it's stuff, stuff that happens. Ellen Barkin's in it. She's really good. Mickey's great. Um, I, I'm sure that's really available. But my, yeah, top, yeah. M- my top tips for adults looking to feel like Christmas, but not necessarily engage in the commercial side of Christmas or even the, the festivities of Christmas, Metropolitan, Diner, and a Midnight Clear. Oh, and planes, trains, and automobiles. But I mentioned that much, much earlier. And that's and no one can go the the festive season without watching that. Bloody love planes, trains, and automobiles. But we're here today to discuss Trading Places by John Landis, nineteen eighty three, released in June. So very much a <laughs> non Christmas Christmas picture. I checked out the numbers quickly as well. Regular listeners will remember that on the Electronic Labyrinth, we looked into the career of Jim Carrey and we considered the demise of the blockbuster comedy and wondered about where comedy is these days. Uh, Trading Places came out in 83, as Luke says, in the summer. And it was the fourth biggest film of its year domestically. And I checked and it was about the 22nd biggest comedy of its decade the 80s domestically, and 10 of those were PGs. So in terms of purely adult films, there are only maybe 10 or 11 bigger comedies in the whole of the 80s. And its box office take, I ran the adjuster on it. In 1983 dollars, it took 90 million, which is in 2019 money, 
233 million, that would put it in the US top 10 for every year this decade, except 2016. That's how big it was. I mean, that's astonishing. And we've talked... What was uh, happening in 2016 then? That means it wasn't, wouldn't be in that year. I didn't write it down, but it, it oh, missed out. It, it, came, it came 11th. As a rough guide, it would make the top 10 in any year this decade, which and I think it, shows how, how big comedies were in the 1980s. We've talked about that before, haven't we? The fact that comedy was a bigger genre back then. And the thing I'd say as well is it was a, this was clearly a slower burn. You know, it was in the top 10 for a number of weeks. Mm. These days, it is more around what splash do you make in that opening weekend? And if, you know, if you're, you're gone after three weeks, you know, if you're not, if you're not a big player. So this was one of those ones that wasn't a huge opening, but it sustained itself and word of mouth got round. Word of mouth. Do you remember that? That's a, <laughs> that's a thing that's literally not, not a factor anymore in theatrical releases. I think Jordan Peele gets it and that might be it. Yeah. You that, could be right about that. Actually. That might yeah. be it. And uh, in thinking about trading places and it, and it's, superiority at the box office i revisited what's done well this year comedically and it's uh it's pretty risible the the biggest comedy of 2019 will be the upside by neil berger now i think that's the one with brian cranston in a wheelchair and kevin hart a remake of the untouchables not the untouchables but the the french film the untouchables you know the one and it will finish uh outside the top 20 and then other than that do you remember oh, good boys go. the seth rogan thing yep with the yep. three kids that's finishing about 31st right uh and beyond that uh zo- and this is all uh domestic by the way but beyond that zombie land i think it's important to consider just how big comedies were in the 80s and as well the kind of comedies that were coming out and i think the reason uh, the reason i've an affinity with them is uh beyond the the connection to christmas the reason i've an affinity to them is that there were many underdog comedies in the 1980s and i went through the biggest box office comedy hits of the 80s nine to five blues brothers stripes trading places beverly hills cop crocodile dundee police academy back to school working girl they're mostly people that we can sympathize with i i Mm -hmm. I really like that kind of eddie murphy character where he's um and mick dundee is the same where he is the smartest most capable man in the room but he's underrated by those around him yeah and so he's got something to fight against and I don't think we have that so much. I looked at some of the um, recent comedies over the last 10, 15 years. And in terms of underdog comedies, I had Mr. Deeds. You remember that Sandler picture? Yeah, I do. Yeah. It's, uh, I it's mean, a favourite of mine. I don't mind that movie. It's okay. It's more like Fish Out of Water, though. Uh, Bringing Down yeah. the House, which was Steve Martin and Queen Latifah. Dodgeball, which actually calls itself a true underdog story. <laughs> and S- Spy, she's kind <laughs> of an still, underdog. And that's, <laughs> it makes me giggle every time I see it written down as well. <laughs> And um, Fun with Dick and Jane, which I remember you said Lex had a problem with because although they're underdogs in their context, really, they're uh, quite extraordinarily wealthy yuppies and they yeah. don't c- get their comeuppance. Is that right? Yeah, that was that was her take on it. And um, I don't think it's necessarily just a white middle class outlook of, oh, but they didn't get their comeuppance. The fact is that they're sort of middle class people anyway. Mm. So it's kind of difficult to empathize with them in in some way like what i can't i can't remember the film in great detail but i don't really feel like they've lost too much you know i, I feel like well you'll be all right you'll bounce back but yeah um, yeah that, that was that was lex's feeling at the time anyway it's rich people going after even richer people quite yes I think. because but, that's um, the true problem you know yeah but then it made me think about how in the 80s there seemed to be more comedies that were overtly 
kicking against the upper classes and mm-hmm. uh, institutions trading and places the status well. quo. Yeah, and, yeah. and trading places is one of them. I, I always think of my access point for trading places in terms of Christmas is that fantastic scene uh, with Aykroyd as Santa Claus. Yes. Um, I, uh, oh, I, I think it imprinted on me at a young age, but nevertheless, it's still utterly gross to see him take the salmon it's out of his Santa yeah. costume. Yeah. It's uh, one of my favourite moments of celluloid. Uh, <laughs> it, it really is. Because um, one of my favourite scenes in the movie um, is, is is Eddie Murphy o- overhearing the plot. And we'll come to it in a minute. We'll, we'll do scene by scene in a moment. I've got yeah, it set yeah. up. But um, the, 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 there's real quick fire in that. There's escalation is fantastic. Um, Eddie Murphy um, putting the joint in his mouth and trying to, and then realizing yeah. that it's it's a light. Um, and th- that that for me is at that moment of the movie one of my favorites. And then before you know it, you've cut away to to Dan Aykroyd looking like a complete down and out Santa with a dirty grey beard, like you said, eating a whole a whole salmon steak. Mm. Yeah, the people on the bus just looking at him as he gets the uh, the beard hair. Caught in his teeth as he's rip, ripping yeah. into the the flesh of the salmon, um, yeah. and it, it I I think it put me off fish. <laughs> Other than tuna, I think it put me off fish for a really long time. Let's set up trading places properly. Sure. It's 1983. It's by John Landis. This is off the back of American Werewolf and Blues Brothers. It was the first mm-hmm. picture that he shot after the tragedy of Twilight Zone, I believe. Danny Aykroyd is uh, a fantastically wealthy. Uh, stocks trader working at the behest of the Duke brothers played by Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy um, and he early Which on in I've the always pic- imagined is um, a, a, like the, I know it's very loose but I know that um, right um, that Landis loves his like doo-wop and stuff and, and blues and yeah. Duke 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 of Earl Earl <laughs> I just oh. I, I always imagine oh, yeah. that I could be wrong. It's it's, it's tenuous as hell, but uh, I've always liked to think that they should reference that. No, that's so. A yeah, good point. They, they 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 represent very crusty old money, and this is one of the very interesting things you were alluding to trading places as um, a comedy of the eighties that is uh, lampooning the old order. And yeah, whilst in, later in the decade we have uh, Gordon Gecko, Wall Street, and and uh, all that kind of stuff, uh, I do feel like this is still lampooning kind of an earlier time you know it feels like old money doesn't it it feels like an old it doesn't feel like that gordon gecko wall street stuff oh i know what you mean yeah it's not slick it's it's landed gentry almost these are people that go you know go back 200 years they live exactly that and and, and they talk about that they talk about that in the movie a lot that there's a lot of heritage within the brokerage firm that the brothers represent Mm. and um that they've sat on the the the, the, leadership for hundreds of years and it feels very much like that kind of yeah. For, it's more like it's old money. It's it's inherited. It's not that whole slick. Um, it's really fashionable to be to get rich, you know, in mm. uh, in eighties corporate America. While watching it this time, I tried to understand what Landis does that makes his comedies really work. Because he's uh, always struck me as an incredibly inobtrusive director, and I couldn't really say what his style is. So I was watching it more closely, um, 
And what he does, like Spielberg, is he allows blocking and the movement of the actors to create the joke. So there's there's many instances in the picture where the humour is created by a, a, a character approaching a static camera. If you remember um, early on when the cops pick up Eddie, literally pick up Eddie, and then he says, I can see, I have legs, I can walk. And he, he then it, uh, the shot moves to him approaching the camera and the climax of that joke is when his face is almost touching it and he kind of gives a, you know, and yeah. turns to walk away. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Landis does that nicely and Spielberg does the same thing where Spielberg in each cut uh, creates excitement through characters moving around. Now, of course, there's dollies and there's tilts as well. Yeah. And pans. But Spielberg very cleverly positions the camera almost it's um almost like watching a stage on occasion and he'll have people create the tension and the excitement by moving further from the camera and then moving toward the camera so i noticed that landis does that but another thing he does really well and it's particularly useful for trading places is he does a lot of god's eye view stuff and um positioning the camera at, uh, in the corner of a room to give it a kind of apex Mm. And these are just lustrous, ornate, uh, wonderful wood-panelled drawing rooms and offices. Yeah, the yeah. opulence is f- phenomenal, isn't it? You really and get again, a, all, a old, sense for it. Old, kind of old world yeah. stuff, you know. And uh, so the, the two brothers will continue to try and set up. You can dive in as well. But these are the two brothers who, who, who the Duke brothers. And what I also love is that it's a brokerage firm that they they run in Philadelphia. So this is not New York. We end up in New York, but I love yeah. that it's set in Philly. I think that there's there's a reason for that as well. One of the writers actually has um, has said there's an article we'll link to in the show notes, um, which was Business Insider. Um, it was a 30 year look back, I think, back in uh, 2013, and they talk about uh, one of the writers talks about how um, it's actually like the birth because it's the birthplace of the Constitution. It's got this uh, this uh, this this element there again of like the birthplace of the nation. Um, a- again, I think that that that's an important important point that the film is trying to make on some level um but they have a bet don't they on whether a person's character is shaped by nature or nurture given the right surroundings and encouragement i'll bet that that man could run our company as well as your young winthorpe are we talking about a wager randolph i suppose you think winthorpe say if he would lose his job would resort to holding up people on the streets no, I don't think just losing his job would be enough for Winthorpe. I think we'd have to heap a little more misfortune on those narrow shoulders. If he lost his job and his home and his fiancée and his friends, if he were somehow disgraced and arrested by the police and thrown in jail even, yes, I'm sure he'd take the crime like a fish to water. You'd have to put him in the wrong surroundings, of course, with the worst sort of people. I mean, real scum, Randall. We've done it before. This time it's in a good cause. How much you want to bet? The usual amount. Why not? Yeah, and so it's early on, um, Ackroyd, uh, Ackroyd has an altercation with Eddie Murphy's character, who is pretending to be a street bum, um, a legless blind veteran, Billy Ray Valentine, who is subsequently arrested, and the Dukes, who have been bickering about nature versus nurture, um, 
they spot an opportunity for a wager and decide that they'll put Danny Aykroyd in the poorhouse while at the same time elevating Billy Ray, Eddie mm. Murphy, uh, to show that it's, um, it's opportunity rather than breeding. Uh, and so they, uh, they proceed to do so. They ruin Dan Aykroyd's life and install uh, Eddie Murphy in the home that they own with the butler that they keep, Denham Elliott's character. They give him a job. It, absolute prince and the pauper stuff yeah yeah um so that's that, that that's it and uh yeah so when they, they they managed to plant drugs on him and they 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 um said so they managed to get danny arrested on that point and then um we're introduced uh to jamie lee curtis's uh prostitute type t- with the heart character uh who's put up to um to, to make it look like she's gonna solicit uh, gonna, he's gonna solicit her um, outside the steps even though he's just finally gotten out of uh out of uh out of jail out of the slammer for the night um and uh yeah so that that's it it does go from there and um what i like as well is that in in the film both both characters dan Aykroyd and eddie murphy and one of the things to say about dan Aykroyd actually um a pivotal moment for him and his career so uh, as with jamie lee curtis so jamie lee curtis at, at to this point was purely a horror um actress and um and it was landis who had uh identified i think he'd worked with her on um like a horror documentary or or some kind of um tv special looking back on um horror movies of the 50s and he'd obviously gotten on well enough with her to 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 cast her in the film which i don't believe the studio were keen on so um as a result of that though obviously it completely changed um jamie lee curtis's career and equally for dan Aykroyd, i think a pivotal moment for him coming off the back of very sadly the death of belushi and it, almost inconceivable up to this point, having him work off and spar off of another comedian, um, and Eddie Murphy, of course, just being twenty-one years old, was 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 essentially unknown uh, by this point. It's certainly in Hollywood. So uh, yeah, I think I think it's such an important film that uh, had a lot a lot of chance riding on it. You know, I think Landis was taking risks and um, it, it, in casting some of these people at the time. Yeah, there. Well, both um, as you've said, Jamie Lee Curtis was a novice to the genre. But Eddie Murphy was a novice to acting in general. He'd only made 48 Hours with Walter Hill. Mm. I heard, I listened to a great interview between Hill and Brett Easton Ellis three or four years ago. And the same applies to Trading Places. Eddie had blistering comic talent and acting ability. But at that stage in his career, he did require coordination. And interestingly, when they reunited for Coming to America, Eddie was intensely critical of John Landis and the experience there. He said that Landis was still treating him like the kid he was four years before uh, and Landis was treating Eddie as though he'd uh, in some ways invented him. film turned out all right, but they didn't get on at all. Then, funnily enough, they reunited for Beverly Hills Cop 3 and I've always wondered whether it's because by that stage in both their careers, they were both desperate for a hit. But yeah, this is only Eddie's second picture and he is fantastic. Aidan Ive talks about this. He's like Alex Turner or something. Uh, I... I don't know how he can already be so accomplished in yeah, so sure. many different ways. He's he's such a confident performer, such a charismatic performer. He doesn't feel he doesn't feel his twenty one years, you know, in, no. in, in the in the whole film. He he absolutely doesn't. What I like about both um, Ackroyd and, and Murphy's characters uh, in the film is they're both really just trying to get by on their own track. You know, the, the way they're introduced. Uh, Ackroyd is looking to marry the grandniece of the Duke brothers and kind of inherit some wider part of the firm. Eddie's trying to make a dime uh, 
with some fairly you know just innocent scams you know and i i really like that uh, both characters are just trying to get by and and it, and it's the it's this um strange set of circumstances that throws them together and um and, and disrupts that but um i was thinking as well about thematically whether it's to what extent it's christmasy uh this happens over the course of Christmas, you know. Mm. You've you've alluded earlier on to the fact that um, when Dan Aykroyd is truly down and out, and he's been um, living with Jamie Lee Curtis, the prostitute, for a little while, he's helping him out, and he's um, by this point thinking, "I'm going to plant drugs on Eddie Murphy, and uh, then we'll, uh, we'll 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 get to the bottom of all of this." And uh, he um, he is then dressed as Santa and uh, is, is trying to hold up basically his office Christmas party. We were at Christmas time. By the time uh, the gang is, um, his, uh, Eddie and Eddie and Dan Ackwood have, have teamed up to, to get their own back on the Duke brothers and Jamie Lee Curtis is in on it. And um, Dan Elliott's in on it as well. The Butler um, who's fantastic by the way, throughout the yeah, whole yeah. picture. He's, he's so good. There's so many lines that I was just scribbling down, uh, especially in the first kind of third of the, of the movie. Um, there's a wonderful moment when he just looks like he's in pain when he says, will you be needing anything else, sir, to, 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 uh, yeah. to Dan Aykroyd? Uh, it's just the way his delivery is there is fantastic. Um, and when the Duke brothers are enlisting him to help with the deceit as well on the phone, you can't hear what they're saying. And he goes, an experiment? No, it does sound all very original. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there's some great lines. Um, but anyway, but yeah. You remember his line after that? No, go on. What's that? Um, he puts the phone down. And he says, "What a scumbag!" <laughs> so Christmas is the backdrop. Um, yeah, but yeah. But by the time they're doing, um, they're doing the switcheroo and, and the gangs back back together. It's um, very much uh, like in New Year. You know, there's, there's the backdrop of a New Year's party, and then and then the the final climax is is beyond New Year. Do beyond New Year. But there's um, there's Christmassy themes to an extent. Um, I thought it was interesting that Aykroyd's tennis tennis club friends, when he's down and out, this is what really puts pushes him to the edge. They shun him, um, so it shows that in his hour of need, uh, you know, that's when you find out who your true friends are. In this case, of mm. course, Jamie Lee Curtis's uh, prostitute. There's, uh, but yeah, it does move to New Year's pretty swiftly. So, to what extent it has much to do with Christmas, I'm, uh, I, I'm not entirely sure. It's a good structure on which to hang it, though. It's, I mean, it means that everything moves extraordinarily quickly. Mm. It's at most. I guess it a gives it a sense of period. time, you know, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, and something I noticed with um, I watched this back to back with Vacation a couple of years ago, and Vacation is a far more consistently laugh out loud funny film. Mm. Vacation is funny for every minute of its hundred or so minutes from the very beginning. Trading Places takes, I think it's. And when I approach these older films with a more critical eye, I am genuinely trying to, to an extent, to find, um, to find fault in them and to dislike them because I want to be critical about it. Um, and I still think that Trading Places is fantastic. However, it is marked how slowly it starts. Yeah. And how it is, there are still laughs. But they're more 80s. Uh, the comedy is a kind of comedy that was funnier in the 80s, whereas Vacation's humour, I find, you could re-release that film now and it would do as well as it did. I don't know if that's going to be a bombshell, though, but I've got to say I like the first uh, kind of half of the movie rather than the second half. 
it goes oh, mega right. madcap and, and i think is this blasphemy but is uh, it goes mega madcap obviously after <coughs> dan Aykroyd is in the santa suit there's the stick up um i love the cag when he finally p- places the gun to his head to try and blow his brains out it doesn't go off and then he throws it he's in the pouring rain he throws the gun away and then and then it goes off off camera yeah. and and smashes a window yeah, uh, yeah. I, I love all that stuff but but when they're doing the big switch the whole stuff with the the ape you know I, i've never really enjoyed the ape thing uh where, where um because both apes the real ape and then the guy uh the, the ape costume both both look equally fake to me which yeah. uh which, which <laughs> never really never really works particularly well um so yeah, it gets more That's and more madcap as it goes off, and uh, um, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I prefer the more grounded first half, if I'm honest. I like all of it. I couldn't ignore how sedate, well paced, but sedate it is for the first forty to sixty minutes. Mm. But its sense of pacing is remarkable. Unlike many modern comedies, its pace is terrific throughout. In as much as it, you know, it's uh, it walks to begin with and then moves into a jog, and then there's, I find, a, a wonderful sprint finish. There is a sprint finish, yes. And I, I, I like a lot of the Madcap stuff. Now, um, uh, Al Franken and Tom Davis in roles that were apparently intended for Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis to do the McKenzie brothers. Mm. Uh, it feels like a different picture, but it still works well enough for me, and also it's uh, those kind of Joker elements were required, and Jim Belushi's character, they were required for the plot to really start connecting. You know, somebody needs to lose a gorilla suit and the um, baggage handlers need to be drunk and kind of dopey anyway. Yeah, uh, sure. The the scene where they're all dressed up with Paul Gleason as Clarence Beaks in the train carriage, I think is fucking fantastic. I, 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 I certainly hope there's enough spears on the train for me. Nenge! Nenge Yomboko from Cameroon. Do you remember me? It's Lionel Joseph. Lionel! From the African Education Conference, right? Yes, Simon. I was director of cultural events at the Haile Selassie Pavilion. I remember the pavilion. We had big fun there. I don't have any problem with um, uh, with <laughs> with Dan Aykroyd as uh, Lewis Winthorpe um, <laughs> dressing up as Lionel Joseph, the Jamaican, because. Uh, and this isn't any kind of um, intellectual get-out. It's just that the case is they're meant to be dressed up as people, and the, the premise of the joke is that the costumes are shit. That first Jamie Lee Curtis yeah. is Swedish, but she's clearly dressed as an Austrian. Yeah, she's got the um, nationalities wrong. Yeah, sec- yeah and, and refuses a- when when <laughs> yeah. the pre- when Dunham Elliott's priest tries to uh, cr- correct her on her nationality. Yeah, she you can there's a moment where she knows that she's got it wrong. But she refuses to go with it, and yeah. she just decides to stick with the mistake. Uh, yeah. That's a that's a great moment. And the other the other thing is, it's supposed to be you know, blackface, hardly hardly excusable uh, today. But I think Paul Gleason, the joke is supposed to be on Paul Gleason's character to an extent. Like, like you're right. Like, oh, this will fool that th- these costumes will fool him. Like they're they're assuming they'll fool, and they, they yeah. don't. They ultimately don't. But the and whole each idea is worse is, than the last. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Because as well, you know, obviously Eddie's just doing a ridiculous uh, Cameroon accent, which is nothing. Yeah. <laughs> well, and he starts singing to himself. Um, yeah, and there's a there's a moment, a, a couple of scenes later, where Jim Belushi sees 
Jamie Lee and says, Hey, Sprechen Sie Deutsch? And she says, No, I'm from Sweden. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, I just, it's, it's funny that those, it's, what's funny is that those characters could possibly believe that they could pull off this scam from what is essentially a Watergate burglar and a a prime operator by, (laughs) by dressing as a fucking Jamaican and lighting a giant spliff. Yeah. Um, I love all that. And it's, I know it, yes, it was a different time. So in, to an extent that meant that that joke could be put on screen, but I'd love to see it in a comedy now because the, the premise isn't that it's funny for a white fellow to be dressed as a black man. The premise is that it's preposterous that they could possibly think that these costumes would work. Well, they're um, joking when... <laughs> as well that they both that both he and Eddie Murphy know each other. I always think yeah. that that's part of the gag, isn't it? That oh, we're two yeah. black guys, so let's <laughs> pretend we know each other, and that's sure to fool Paul Gleason because he'll think that we're two black guys that know each other. So that yeah. that that's, for me is kind of like the cherry on top. That that's. The, the Tanak would, would you know, his character would immediately go to, oh, Eddie's black, so I'll pretend to yeah. be black too, and then it's like we're friends. Like, that's the joke, right? I, 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 as a gambit, I think it's terrific. Uh, I really love Eddie's... I mean, again, this is speaking to his comic ability at such a young age, but um, he gives a really fun... You know when he, sa- he says, Biff, joke time, and then he offers it to Den Elliott. And he says, no, it gives me the wind, something terrible. And Eddie gives a really funny, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. He's, he's just fucking terrific. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the whole cast is great. They really, really are. Yeah, th- that scene. But that's what I mean about um, it. Barrel, uh, the, the pace quickens and then it barrels into madcap comedy, which for me works superbly. Um, the, the laughs in the first half are consistent. Uh, but they're intentionally more sporadic and they're, they're intentionally um, kind of internal chuckles. And I think that's partly because the film goes to some length to set up the milieus of the characters. You know, it has the, uh, the well, I mean, they're a good barbershop quartet, but it's incredibly Caucasian in New England, isn't it? When they're doing the Constance Fry. Constance Fry, all of that, and it's just singing for the girls. And but you just, need to understand, yeah, don't yeah. you? You, you, you need yeah. to understand who, well, where Winthorpe comes from, and the kind of the kind of environment he's been raised in. And then I like as well. I mean, one of the best things about the film, and we were talking about underdog comedies and fish out of water comedies, and that the heroes are um, a, a down on his luck black fella, and a butler, or yeah. who is you know early on uh, Eddie refers to him as his personal slave. Yeah, he does. And a hooker. Yeah. And they're joined by um, uh, a well-to-do Caucasian fellow. But I think it should be remembered that he, as you said, he he attempts suicide. That's how low, that's the, the bottom he hits. It's not as if he hasn't learned his lesson, I, I don't suppose. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. He almost, he's ready to kill himself because and- everything has been taken away from him. Yeah, exactly, and it all starts when, but when he's his first night in prison, and one of my favourite lines, uh, which he shouts out when he's let out, is, "Those men tried to have sex with me." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, you know, on that note, um, I I know many people have talked about it, but Aykroyd is. Um, I don't think he's ever truly outshone by Murphy. Murphy, don't get me wrong, is uh, in scene stealing territory, but Aykroyd's yeah. great. And considering he was coming off the back of um, the passing of. Um, of Belushi, uh, you know, and, and they were very much known as that double act. It's, um, uh, I think he did really well to, uh, you know, have that, put in the performance that he did, you know, like, um, 
Winthorpe's a real character, you know, it, it, for, for real. Like he's truly crafted something that that works well, and a lot of his yeah. delivery, a lot of his lines are endlessly quotable, just because the the weird pronunciation he'll he'll put on a word, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and he doesn't. What um, Danny Aykroyd did a lot of stuff early in his career in the eighties. He played various different characters, and including. A, a really ill-judged, high-pitched voice in Caddyshack 2, which mm. I quite dislike. But when we think of him now, we think of him as a bloke who dispenses technical information at great speed. Yeah. And he does that in Spies Like Us and Gross Point Blank. And he's always been very good at that, does it, in Blues Brothers as well. But yeah, in this one... It doesn't he go, is... yeah, Ghostbusters and stuff. I'm sure yeah, he'll be yeah. doing it in... I'm sure he'll be doing it in Ghostbusters Afterlife at some point. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen the trailer but, uh, to that, but yeah. But this one isn't typical of the Aykroyd characters that had been well-received up to that point. I, I think he does nail someone who is, uh, let's see, he's pitiable without being pathetic, and he's he's just enough of a feeb to then be a goodie, I suppose. But that's yeah. because he's lined up alongside some other repellent preppies and the dukes who are just who are just bloody terrible you know yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> and they're, and they oh, another thing i like about trading places is that it has in it overt racists mm. you know um uh, well we even Aykroyd about... at a couple of points is uh, i think on two occasions he calls uh, eddie murphy a negro i mean i would call that a level of institutional racism or uh, just growing up without well he, he's utterly ignorant of anything but the upbringing he's had at Harvard and public schools, but um, the yeah the overt uh, abhorrent racism of the Dukes. What does he says? He says, "Of course, there's something wrong with him. He's a Negro. He's probably and been he just, stealing before he could crawl." <laughs> yeah, mm. and it, you know, it's what what I like about that is that um, it it immediately makes them hissable. You know, it's, it, we, yeah. that's not like... I, like I don't Nazis want pe- in Indiana Jones yeah, or something. I don't, yeah. yeah, exactly. I don't want yeah. people to think, oh, well, that's just how people thought at the time. No, it, it's not fucking how everyone thought at the time. It was 1982, 1983. Yeah. There weren't people... <laughs> they, you know, we were moving towards the end of people outright saying that to their friends, colleagues. Um, and I, I think it's it's great that you set up the two bastard baddies and then have them overturned by uh, the three working class people and the bloke that they wronged. Um, and both Amici and Ralph Bellamy are really good as well. And, and it's, it's challenging when you... Um, Amici hadn't acted in about a decade. Uh, and it's challenging when you bring two old heads to a modern production. Because mm. these blokes, they're of Cab Calloway's age. They're acting in the 30s and 40s. Um, yeah. Ralph Bellamy was a Baxter in His Girl Friday and The Awful Truth. And they were so far removed. Can you imagine... Uh, their agents saying saying to them, "We think you might want to work with this guy Landis. Here's what he's done: Animal House and Blues Brothers." They watch that and think, well, "Jesus Christ!" Yeah, you know, they would have no reference points for what Landis or Eddie or Danny Aykroyd had been doing up to that point. And then you try and show them Jamie Lee Curtis's pictures, and it's Halloween and Terror Train and the Fog. Mm. You know, uh, and Denholm Elliott as well. I, we've talked about this briefly before, but. When you're a kid, you have a really distorted understanding of who's really important. And because I liked the Burbs, Blues Brothers and Star Wars, I thought Carrie Fisher was the biggest actress on the planet. Mm. And because I was into Indiana Jones and Trading Places, I was nine years old and Denholm Elliott was one of my favourite actors, even though I only knew him from those two or three films. Uh, He's really good. 
and and that's the thing i think that um a lot of the dialogue is especially early in the film is very expositional that's but true. they yeah. they get away with it because the performances are very strong um particularly bellamy and amici who will have been used to delivering perfunctory dialogue because that's kind of how it was done in the olden days in the 30s 40s 50s there wasn't necessarily the the, the kind of rhetorical flourish or um but they get away with it uh and the, the other thing as well in, in terms of what's lacking from modern comedies i've already talked about how i like the photography style and that's landis working with robert painter who was his go-to dp forever and ever but Elmer Bernstein's score. I mean, the, the picture opens with Mar- Marriage of Figaro mm. by Mozart, and that sets it up as um, apprentice upturning master. But then the, the other stuff that Bernstein brings to it, as he had done on um, Animal House, and he did the score for Airplane, and he worked a little on uh, Blues Brothers 2, did the church music for that specifically. I love those comedy scores of the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, he did Ghostbusters 2. And we all know them by heart. They're as, they're as important to us as John Williams. Yeah, that's very true. Absolutely. And oh, that's, that's, that's been lost more recently. You know, comedies... It's, it's mad to think about it, isn't it? To think that comedies don't have scores any longer. They don't have memorable scores. Where 80 years ago, comedy was almost all score. If you think about um, a very early comedy like Charlie Chaplin and Harold Lloyd and oh, absolutely, and, uh, yeah, it's a really good point. And, Laurel and um, Hardy. We've touched upon how the earlier Landis picture as well really set the tone for. Um, so Animal House really set that tone for the for next where the 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 idea an airplane as well. You know, the idea of you'd have a serious score that um, doesn't play up the comedy. It's a, it's a serious score that kind of grounds the film, but then just by the the fact that it's even included, but the fact that this serious kind of playing it straight score is there it immediately makes yeah. the stuff that's happening on screen just heightened you know and, all, and yeah, all, all, yeah. All, all the funnier yeah and remember um I, c- I can't remember if it's henry mancini it might be bernstein uh bernstein but um naked guns da 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 everybody remembers that too and we yeah it's something that we've lost from modern comedies um it some there needs to be someone to bring it back uh i'd I can't imagine who that would be. Um, there are good comedy directors working at the moment. Greg Mottola is really good. And Jake Kasdan, is, uh, he was one of my favourites. And then he's just got Jumanji and Jumanji 2. So he's mm. essentially one of the biggest directors working today, let alone comedy directors. Um, yeah, the, the Jumanji pictures. Uh, have you seen it, one of them? No, I haven't seen any. But it feels to me like, yes, it's comedy. Is it action comedy? I, d- I don't know. It feels like there's still it's still like a big special effects picture, right? Yeah, it's more like the Mummy, the Stephen Sommers, the yeah. Mummy with uh, Rachel Weisz and um, and Brendan Fraser. Fraser. In, in among all the films that we've talked about, in among Metropolitan and Diner mm. and Great Escape and Midnight Clear, I'll be watching Trading Places. I've already seen it once, and I'll probably have a few people over. I like that. Uh, I like that it fucks the rich. Uh, I like that it 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 shows the uh, ingenuity and resolve and. Uh, it, it, also importantly that the basic decency of the working class characters because mm. um, uh, as, as you alluded to earlier when Coleman is expected to when Coleman is asked to run the scam and, and pull the ruse on Aykroyd that uh, Landis it makes sure to show how conflicted he is about it and also to show it's that when they uh, when 
Eddie has moved into Ackroyd's crib and he has the party that doesn't go particularly well. Mm. And he turns off the record player and says, get the fuck out. Mm. And uh, there's a moment where he thanks Coleman. He says something like, yeah, I think I will retire. Yes. Thanks, Coleman, man. Have a good night. And again, the camera lingers on Coleman and uh, and Dan O'Melia. And what it, it conveys like that's the first time that anybody's first time one of his charges has ever even treated him as as something of an equal. Yeah, because earlier Dan Aykroyd uh, suddenly wants to have sex with his girlfriend. So, uh, yeah. no dessert, sir. You have it. You know, and uh, yeah, we see him yeah. put in the bin, you know, because, uh, you know, why would he want it? But, uh, yeah, no, you're right, mate. Um, I, I'm going to turn this, uh, give it another spin. Uh, obviously watched it in preparation for the show tonight, but uh, it's definitely one of my... Trading Place is definitely one of my favourite non-Christmas Christmas films. Uh, I would give you bonus points if you could actually explain the uh, the final switch, the final ruse, the plan uh, at the end of the picture, oh, yeah, which I, um, I mean... which does a number on me. I, I obviously I get the principle of it. Um, yeah. They they screw over the Duke brothers by uh, manipulating uh, manipulating the um, scarcity of frozen orange juice uh, on the uh, on the market. But quite how like the mechanics of it work uh, is my head actually starts to spin. It has a climax. So many comedies forget to have a climax. Mm. So many recent comedies forget to. One I always point to that does well is Five Year Engagement. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, with, with the multiple marriages. I think that's, that's a really good conceit and it's uh, pulled off very well. Um, and Blues Brothers, it has a climax by Landis saying, fuck it, everything. Yeah. And that so... works. But this one truly builds to something genuinely exciting that... Obviously, as a kid, I'd never seen anything like that before. But even now, it's an exciting thing to watch. Keep the change. Think big. Think positive. Never show any sign of weakness. Always go for the throat. Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. Nothing you have ever experienced can prepare you for the unbridled carnage you're about to witness. The Super Bowl, the World Series, they don't know what pressure is. In this building, it's either kill or be killed. You make no friends in the pits and you take no prisoners. One minute, you're up half a million in soybeans and the next, boom. Your kids don't go to college and they've repossessed your Bentley. Are you with me? Yeah, but we gotta kill them, motherfucker! We gotta kill them! There's a maelstrom about it and... Uh, There's theatre to it, yeah. Uh, yeah, a, a They were really of... filming that guerrilla style on in... Um... yeah. In the World Trade Center, actually, it was, yeah. You, and you get that you have an understand. You can follow it. You have an understanding of what's going on, but the complexities may elude you. But that doesn't matter because, as he says, when they're walking in, it's pure capitalism, and all you need to know is they're going to win. Whatever they're doing is going to pay off. The uh, the actual calculation that's performed is that. So it goes with... back to the train, doesn't it? So so um, yeah. Paul Gleason's character is on the train. He's got a briefcase which has the agriculture report, which, um, amongst other things, uh, has in there. It would obviously be put before Congress, and amongst other things, has in there how the scarcity of oranges, not frozen oranges, but oranges. And um, uh, obviously, the gang, our gang, Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy and the gang, uh, know that they're going to buy all of the frozen orange juice stock. So they, they switch the briefcases there, right, on the train to say that yeah. the, the, the orange yields this year will be low. There's a false report in there that says that oranges aren't going to do very well this year. So therefore, everyone probably needs to... Everyone then is to assume they should probably buy lots of frozen orange juice, right? The true information is that, that oranges will be plentiful. 
Yeah. The information given to the Dukes is that oranges will be scarce. So when the Dukes begin acting on that, as it, and again, this is shown in the film, characters notice what the Dukes are doing, and my dad always quotes this, the bloke says, the Dukes are trying to corner the market. And so everyone begins imitating the Dukes. So yeah. everyone begins buying as though there won't be many oranges. And uh, Eddie and da- um, Eddie and Dan... It's funny to call him Dan and not Danny. Uh, Danny and Eddie have used uh, Jamie Lee and Denholm Elliott's money in order to buy future stocks in frozen orange juice, which means that what they're, what they're selling is that they will... They promise to sell orange juice at uh, 145 cents six months from now. I think it's in April, isn't it? Yeah. So four months from now. Yeah, you're going so four months from... <laughs> yeah. Four months from now, they'll sell it at 145 cents, um, which makes sense to people buying uh, in December or January because it might be that past April, it will be even higher. It yep. might be 165, it might be 250. So those people buying in January think that 145 is a good price because they're convinced of the scarcity of oranges. Yeah. Then, the, then the, the true crop report comes in and it becomes clear that oranges won't be scarce. So yep. Danny and Eddie have already promised to sell at 145 and they've got a thousand people that have promised to buy at 145. But 145 is a massive overestimation of the value of a frozen orange juice in April that year. Yeah. Uh, and then the price falls down to its uh, accurate level, which is something like 27 or something, because there will be many oranges. Yeah. Uh, and that's when Danny and Eddie start buying things back. What an astonishingly technical detail. No, no one And would obscure ever, detail. Th- th- no one would ever, no studio exec today would ever allow that scene, I think, to, to happen in a comedy yeah. movie. They're going to say no one can follow it, but you have all the information that you need. You know, you don't need you don't need a, um, an intimate knowledge of it. I think we followed it no. pretty well there. I think that was a pretty pretty good attempt. The way that Trading Places explains that calculation is actually more comprehensible than in The Big Short. And Trading yeah. Places doesn't yeah. require stunt cameos and uh, talks to camera. There is a, there's a, a shot as Eddie and Danny approach the trading floor, and they're shot from behind, and then it goes to uh, inserts, and it's clear. I, I get the feeling that maybe they shot it, and then they said, yeah, don't worry about this. We're just going to put some, Danny, you can record a voiceover later, and it will explain things. Yeah. But it works. It, it works as well as it needs to. Well, this is it, the last bastion of pure capitalism left on Earth. Here in New York, they trade everything. Gold, silver, platinum, heating oil, propane, cocoa and sugar, and of course, frozen concentrated orange juice. Now the people on the phones are taking orders from brokerage houses all over the world. The runners then hand those orders to the traders in the pits. They're trading cotton over there. That's the silver pit. Now the Duke's trader is going to be buying like crazy right from the opening. We'll be waiting until he drives the price up. Right. I can't wait to see his face when they broadcast that genuine crop report. OJ Trading opens at 9. Let's go kick some butt. Let's go. Something Landis does really well with his inserts is create a 
a, a decent feeling of the environment. He does very good establishing shots, although I'll concede I may only think that because his films were so formative to me. So when I think of introductory shots, I think of what John Landis does. Loads of shots of statues. Have you ever noticed that? Oh, God, yes. I mean, I, yeah. I think I think that that's... He does that in all of his pictures, but I mm. think it's really integral to this one, um, thematically speaking. So when uh, Dan, Danny Aykroyd is, is being dragged out of the... Um, of the bank, I uh, haven't yeah. been found to um, at the Heritage Club. At the yeah. Heritage Club, yeah, I haven't yeah. been fa- fa- found to, uh, to, to 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 obviously uh, have these drugs on him. There, there's shots of all of the paintings, the oil paintings. It's clearly the 200 years worth of um, old money looking down on him. You know, judgment, yeah. judgmentally, shamefully. There's a lot of statues, and I wondered if, um, I mean, again, Philadelphia, so birthplace of the Constitution to an extent. I, I don't know enough about my American history, but I wondered if some of the statues were um, certainly connected with the founding of the Constitution, but also if any of them could have even been slave owners or something. I, was, I wasn't sure if there was anything um, there. But also the opening shots of Trading Places, the movie, um, the, the, the opening, very opening shots, we have a lot of the um, like the poor side of the town. There's a, there's a lot of examples of um, consumerism being thrust upon the poor. So um, obviously there's a there's a this is a poor black community and we and this is just over the opening credits like nothing's happening, but we have just a lot of shots establishing Philadelphia as a place and we see um, like the like this places um, shops selling sneakers and you've got the yeah. um, like the a big um, like Harlem Globetrotters style caricature uh, black dude holding up these aloft big novelty sized sneakers. So there's hmm. definitely this this idea, I think, of um, uh, capitalism and, and consumerism, I should say, uh, you know, being being thrust upon people who can't afford it, you know, can ill afford it. Hmm. And that's, that's probably not what they need, but they're they're aspiring to have shoes. And the, yeah, and it's it's a film uh, at the heart of which is commodities trading, mm. not even just commodities, but commodities trading, and uh, a film that presents a game, a rigged game, to an extent, and then allows uh the like a, a few intelligent people to to turn that game to their advantage but also shows as well that you know um, the, the reality of the situation is that you could have been as Aykroyd's character has you, you could have been primed for this your entire life or you could have been literally plucked from the street mm. and you would have the same level of perception and understanding because mm. it's, it's just one of the <laughs> watching it again today something I really enjoyed was uh at the very beginning of the picture, Aykroyd's reading his paper and he gives a very blasé pork bellies. Something very exciting <laughs> is going to happen in pork bellies. I know. And then he guesses right and that's his work day. He seemingly goes home at, I don't know, 11? 2? Yeah. He just fucks off, doesn't he? He yeah. does that with the pork bellies. They make some money. Then he's off to, <laughs> then he's off to the uh, the club the, uh, with his pals. Yeah, absolutely. The Heritage Club. Yeah. Um, and that moment where uh, uh, Todd, the playboy says something like, oh, you lucky devil, going to see a... Um, and he says, luck's got nothing to do with it. Yeah, this whole idea of um, you make your own... Do you make your own luck? or Yeah, the whole nature-nurture yeah. thing's there. I mean, it's very... Uh, again, this is a, a broad 80s comedy, and it's um, it's very obvious, and at points, at many points, it's literally spoken aloud in the film. Uh-huh. There's, uh, there's very little uh, uh, rhetorical artifice around it, like other eighties pictures, I, you know, if you gave me that screen, if you gave you and I that screenplay, we'd probably want to 
kind of tone it down a little bit, if anything, because it feels like a a second or third draft where characters are, you know, Ralph Bellamy is, he apropos of nothing, he beats the paper he's reading and says, um, nature versus nurture, I don't believe it, you know, yeah, actually yeah, announcing yeah. the themes of the film. You yeah. can't really, you, you kind of want John Milius to come in and say, fellas, come on, you can't just say it. <laughs> you got to uh, 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 surround it in some sophistry, please. Yeah. Um, but uh, it works. It, it works because uh, John Landis is sufficiently talented and it has a lovely pace to it and um and the rhythm as well so not not just the pacing but the uh, the rhythm of the editing which keeps things keeps things moving nicely as i said i like the inserts and i love the uh, the, the two inserts of eddie in the back of the police car looking at the camera and eddie looking at the camera when they say as uh, as you might find in a uh, bacon lettuce and tomato sandwich <laughs> then he yeah looks directly at the camera yeah, and it breaks works. the fourth it, wall yeah, yeah it, it works to it um it, it creates empathy it it's what i think it's it's one it's a masterstroke of the film really to make the audience immediately go yeah eddie's our guy eddie's our boy it's cheating to an extent but it's so audacious and that's typical of landis you know as i said like blues brothers what's the ending well just fucking a million cars a thousand blokes running around going hut hut hut. Can you can you pull it off? Yeah, I'll give it. You know, maybe that'll be an ending. <laughs> no one's really, no one's necessarily done that before, but I'll try. Mm. And it's and um, although it's again like explaining it, it sounds elementary, but Spielberg couldn't do it. Couldn't do it in 1941. No, absolutely it didn't work. No, whatever Landis does, and it's so clear as well that because um, Landis is in 1941, it's so clear that Spielberg saw Animal House loved it and thought, oh, I could use some of those people. I could do that in a picture. I like Madcap. I like Farce. Yeah. And then tried it and it's one of his few... It's not terrible, but it's one of the few failures of his career where even now you watch it and think, yeah, you're outside of your wheelhouse, pal. Johnny Landis can do this, but for some reason you can't. Yeah, absolutely. It's like with... um, like Scorsese can do... He he has another... Scorsese has that dark Madcap edge with After Hours Mm. and Bringing Out the Dead. But I don't know if Spielberg can do that. No. There are some things that he can't quite do, and Landis can do them. Believe it or not, yeah. I look forward to um, getting this off the shelf again uh, this Christmas. Yeah, You're right. Let's let's watch it again, and let's let's see. <laughs> maybe maybe it's on 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 TV at some point. We'll check it out. It's certainly streaming on Sky at the moment, so that might mean it won't do the rounds on Terrestrial. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it's certainly playing on Sky right now. It puts me in a Christmas mood. It gets me ready for the entire festive season. Uh, and the doo-wop as well, you mentioned it earlier on, but um, I do adore John Landis's affinity with uh, typically African-American music and doo-wop. Mm. Mm. Uh, everything he put in Animal House, the Blues Brothers, it's all so uh, elemental to me and um, so formative to me. Cab Calloway and Aretha Franklin. Oh, it's lovely. I love Cab Calloway. <laughs> I, I stick him on in the office sometimes and I can... Yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling very old now because there's a lot of kids in the office uh, who... I'll put something like that on. This literally happened the other day. I came around the corner and um, it was some, um, oh, it was a girl, like 60s girls group I had on. I came around the corner going, what a tune! And uh, everyone burst out laughing because apparently this kid had uh, just not two seconds before I'd come around the corner whistling, had said, who the hell would put this on on an office party <laughs> playlist? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, Cab Calloway, he, he he often gets a gets a spin, but... Um, but yeah, um, I'm increasingly feeling like a man out of time. Um, thanks, Fletch. That was a great trip. 
down memory lane with Trading Places. I say down memory lane, we do watch it every year. Sometimes when we lived together, we watched it two or three times, I think, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for listening to One Sensational Shot. Um, and do get in touch. Let us know what you think. Uh, if you have an opinion or otherwise, you can get in touch on Twitter, of course, if you go to at One Sensational. We're on Facebook if you search One Sensational Shot. And we're also on Instagram, One Sensational Shot. Uh, but uh, you can find everything you need and more on onesensationalshot.com as well as links to us on iTunes uh, on Spotify and on Stitcher but yeah, get in touch let us know what you think thanks very much indeed if we don't speak to you before Merry Christmas um, Merry Christmas and we shall see what happens in the election Um, I'm sure whatever is happening we'll be on the other side of it by the time you're listening to this but Merry Christmas guys we'll speak to you soon thanks very much